If you're at home, make yourself comfortable. If you're here for the baptisms or if you're here uh, for the first time, I want to greet you. My name is Mark Mullery. I get to serve as one of the elders in our church, and it's my delight to bring the sermon uh, this morning. We're in a series in the Gospel of Mark. The series is called Follow Me, and um, it's a series about how Jesus is this great Savior that comes to call together a group of people into a new community, a new family the church, his bride. And this morning, we are in chapter 2. Let me just sort of paint the picture for you just just a little bit before we hear the the passage. Last week, if you were here, we saw that the sermon had these four, the the passage had these four scenes that sort of fit together like a collage. And you put all those four scenes together, and we got this picture of Jesus in his astonishing authority, in his tender compassion, and in his humble dependence on, on God, as Ruth was reminding us, uh, how, how he went out to pray after all, all that amazing activity. This week's passage is similar. It's longer than we usually do, but Mark, the gospel writer, he's a master storyteller. And these five scenes really fit together. So I know we're going to move a little faster through these scenes than, than we usually do, but, but I think if we can assemble them all together, we're going we're gonna to recognize that Mark has, has pieced these five scenes together, chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 6, because they all have three key themes. They share key themes. So as Beth comes to read the passage, I want to encourage you to listen to each of these five scenes and try to detect what are the themes, the threads that carry through all five. So thank you, Beth. Hear God's word to us. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, 
Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Thank you, Beth. Let's pray. I'm going to pray from Psalm 90, verse 14. Oh God, as we gather here on the Lord's Day, our Sabbath in Christ, oh God, would you satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love? Would you satisfy the longings and desires of our hearts with your never-failing, new every morning, mercy, love, and grace in Christ. And would you do this, Lord, so that we might emerge from this building and go into Sunday afternoon and Monday and Tuesday rejoicing and being glad. Lord, let this be a glad church. Let this be a joyful family because of your steadfast love and even the way that you meet us right here right now through this word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we navigated through those five scenes, did you notice any, any themes? Did you notice some similarities? We've given this sort of guiding question as we're going through the Gospel of Mark. We always want to be asking this question, what, is, what do we learn about Jesus from this passage? And certainly each one of these five scenes brings something about Jesus into view and again, we sort of get a continuation of last week. We continue to see more of Jesus' astonishing authority and also his compassion. We'll see that unpacked. But I, I hope you picked up there was something else going on. Because those were themes that were there last week as well. But there's a new thing emerging in each one of these five scenes. Did you, did you catch what that was? In each of these scenes, there's conflict. There's a problem. There's some Pushback. Now, <clears throat> this might surprise you because you might think when <clears throat> the Son of God comes on the scene in person and he does 
all this great stuff. <laughs> he's healing people. He's delivering people from demons. He's, he's calling people to come be his followers. He's forgiving people. You might think everyone would be thrilled by that. But that's not the case. <clears throat> Here we see religious leaders resisting Jesus, actually accusing Jesus of sinning in all kinds of ways. Why? I want you to slow down. Why? Why would people who knew their Bibles well, why would people who were waiting for the Messiah, praying for the Messiah, why would they resist him, oppose him, and even plan to kill him when he's standing there right in front of him? How could that be? And at the same time, outsiders, these sinners and tax collectors, they're welcoming Jesus. The religious insiders are rejecting him. I want you to hold that question as we go through this passage. How could it be that these people who should have been the most ready to welcome and receive Jesus instead resisted and rejected him? So what we're going to do today as we go through these five scenes, I'm going to try to help with the memory uh, by, we're going to use icons uh, for each one of these scenes. I hope that will help you sort of keep them together. So the first scene is about this uh, paralyzed man. So here's our, here's our uh, memory device. Um, this, the setting in, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, this scene of Jesus healing this paralyzed man. The, the location, did you catch this? We're back in Capernaum. Okay, this is where we'd seen Jesus preaching and casting a demon out of a guy in, in the synagogue. And then he healed Peter's mother-in-law. And then there was this big meeting that evening where he's healing all these people and setting all these free, people free from demonic oppression. And then he'd gone off preaching to all these other places. Now he's back and he's inside a house. Maybe it's Peter and Andrew's house. And it says that he's preaching the word to them. Remember that when we get to the parable of the sower Chapter 4, he's preaching the word to them. And this sort of comic, bizarre scene unfolds. Here's what happens. There's, the house is full. It's crowded. You can't get inside. But these four guys have their paralyzed friend, and they want to get this guy to Jesus so Jesus can heal him. But they can't even get in the house. So what to do? Well, plan B is if we can't get in the house through the door, let's make our own door in the roof. And so they cut a hole. They climb up on the roof and they cut a hole in the ceiling. Now, you have to kind of picture, have you ever been in a busy, crowded room when people who couldn't get in cut a hole in the roof? Like, I've never had that happen. First century house, flat roof. It's got timbers laid across it. And then they take sticks and thatch and, and lay it the other direction. And then on top of that goes mud. And then the sun bakes the mud so that it's super hard. So you can walk around up there. And so these four guys find some way to get up there. And the roofs were typically accessible. There's an outside uh, access. So they get up on the roof and they've come with, I don't know, sawzalls, shovels, axes. I don't know what. But imagine the scene in the living room. When you start, you hear people walking around. Well, that's not so uncommon. And then all of a sudden, bam, bam, bam. And then the roof starts to break and there's rocks coming down and mud coming down and sticks coming down. And then the homeowner has got a new skylight that he didn't ask for. And, and then 
Then they lower a guy down through the hole. He's on his mat and they're lowering him down from, I guess, ropes. They came fully prepared and they let this guy down. And so you would think this is an opportunity to what? Call the police. This is property damage, right? And get a construction company. I'm going to need some estimates. Call the insurance company. We got to fix this hole in the roof. But Jesus doesn't rebuke them for this property damage. In fact, Jesus loves what they're doing. He loves their faith. And, and to this man who comes, he's paralyzed. You know what he's there for? He's there to be healed. And so Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. That's a surprise. Not exactly what he was looking for. Second surprise is the scribes, these religious leaders that are there, they seem to be sitting down and have made for themselves good seats. They're watching all this. And here's what they say. Look at verse six. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, quote, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? End quote. Now, hear this question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That is exactly the right question. Let's think about this. Why can God forgive sins? Why can God forgive sins? Let me try to give you an illustration. If I say to you this morning, hey, guess what? Good news. I'm forgiving all your debts. Okay? Credit card student loan, car payments, mortgage, it's medical bill. It's all forgiven. You might say, thanks, Mark, but you know what's going to happen when you look online or at the mail this week? You're going to still get those bills because I don't actually have the authority to forgive your debts. But if you owe me 500 bucks and I say to you, hey, good news, I'm forgiving that debt. You don't owe it to me anymore. You know what happens then? You don't owe it anymore. So God can say, I forgive your sins. Why? Just because he's big and powerful and awesome? He is big and powerful and awesome. But that's not why he can forgive sins. You know why he can forgive sins? Because when you sin, you sin against him. When we sin, God is the offended party. Sin is first and fundamentally against God. Psalm 51 is a great place to go sort this out. Verse 4, against you, this is David praying in the face of his adultery, murder, and abuse of power as king. How does he respond to, to, to the prophetic word that convicts him of his sins? He says, God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, he'd done a lot of evil against people, and he's not denying that. But this is, this is a way of saying, in light of my sins against you, my sins against others are small compared to my sins against you. Sin is first against God. So God can forgive sin because sin is fundamentally against God. It, it puts us in a position of indebtedness and offense against God. Now, if God can forgive sins, why can Jesus forgive sins? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus, how can you forgive this guy's sins? Now, if Jesus is not God, he can't do that. But 
Mark, the gospel writer, is laying out the evidence for us. And what do we see? We see Jesus's divinity here in three ways. Right here in this scene. First, he pronounces the forgiveness of sins. Well, you might say, okay, but I can do that too. How do you verify that? Well, look at the second thing Jesus does. When he sees this man in his paralysis, paralysis, he says in verse 11, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And what happens? He rises and goes out. He has the authority to heal a paralyzed man. The third evidence of Jesus' divinity is that he knows the thoughts of these scribes to the letter, verbatim. He can read their minds. So when they say, who has authority to forgive sins except God alone, you can't do this. He disproves them in thinking and saying that, one, by healing the guy, and two, by revealing their thoughts to them. That should be enough to lead them to worship, but it doesn't. It's a hilarious and happy and sobering story. A few takeaways from this scene. And I've appreciated Edward and his influence on me with this this observation. What a wonderful scene of community, isn't it? This paralyzed man and his four friends. He has friends who will do whatever it takes to bring him to Jesus. I want friends like that. Do you have friends like that? Are you a friend like that? If you don't have a friend like that, I want to encourage you to pray and look for people who love Jesus and who know your struggles and who will do whatever it takes to get you to him. What a sweet picture of community. And how about sin? How serious is sin? I wonder how often we're aware that our sins are first and most against God. Maybe this morning you're actually acutely aware of that. And as the prophetic word came, you're in despair over that. Maybe as we heard in one of the testimonies, you are aware of your need for cleansing this morning. Do you know this passage is so sweet because our sin is worse than we know. I I, I know that. We can all say that. It's worse than we know. And at the same time, we are more loved in Christ than we can ever imagine. Hear this, friends. Jesus Christ has authority on earth to forgive sins. He does. All you need to do is bring him your sin. Repent and believe. That's all it takes. How do I know that? Because that's what he did on the cross. When Jesus is on the cross and he calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know why God was forsaking him? Because your sin and mine was on him. He took that sin and that condemnation so that we could be released from that sin, redeemed from that sin, cleansed from that sin. So here, the opportunity, the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Come and take hold of that. What a sweet picture. 
Now we're going to roll through the next three scenes sort of together. We're going to lump them together because these next three scenes all have something in common. It's Jesus with his disciples and they're sort of causing trouble. There's some conflict around Jesus and his disciples and the the things that are going on. So we're going to start with a tax form for our icon here. And um, that's because this next scene, verses 13 to 17, pictures Levi, the tax collector, being called to come follow Jesus. And as he does that, he throws a party for Jesus with his tax collector and sinner friends. Now, Levi, this tax collector, is also uh, known as Matthew, the author of the Gospel of Matthew. And when Jesus comes to him, it says he's, he's passing by. And in verse 14, he sees Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And Jesus says to him, follow me. And he rises, Levi does, and follows him. Now, this is pretty scandalous. It's hard for us to kind of picture this. You may not be a big fan of taxes and, and, and all that, but people who work for the IRS aren't, aren't outcasts in our society, right? But you got to picture what's going on here. It's one thing to call, he calls these four fishermen. Okay, well, fishermen don't make very impressive enlistees. Like, they're not well-educated. They're, 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 they're not very wealthy. But, but they're at least respectable in their business and in, in, in what they do. But the tax collectors are hated. They are despised because they're collaborating. They're Jewish people that are collaborating with the Romans. And the deal is the Romans say, here's the amount of tax I need you to collect. And the tax collectors can go out and collect as much as they want. And they turn in what they owe to the Romans and they keep the rest for themselves. So they're squeezing the money out of their countrymen and they're in league with the hated Romans. So they were traitors. They were despised. It would be... I don't know. I was trying to think of a good analogy. Like maybe it'd be a little bit like us having dinner with, with a bunch of drug dealers and human traffickers. It just would be like people who just by what they do, you just wouldn't want to be with them. And, and so Jesus is saying, I want you to come follow me. And then he's at a dinner party with all kinds of people just like that. And the religious leaders aren't pleased. Look at verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees these sort of professional religious leaders in Israel, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And I don't think that was a friendly question. I think that's an accusation with a question mark at the end of it. Pause here. Just just think about what's happening. The scribes, they're at this house, probably Levi's house, They're looking at Levi and all these sinners and tax collectors, all these outcasts, marginalized, no good loser people. And and, and they look at this, this household full of people. What do they see? What do they see? How do they assess the situation? You know what they see? They see objects to despise and hate. Stay away from them. They have dehumanized these people so that they're simply something unclean and dirty and bad. Stay away from them. But how does Jesus see the same group of people? He sees candidates for his kingdom. Because look, I didn't, I didn't come to call the healthy. They don't need a doctor. I came for the sick. I came not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. 
So he's welcoming the outsiders into his kingdom. Scene that's right up against this one is a question. It's an anonymous question. Look at verse 18. It's a question about fasting. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and the people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And he's going to give a wedding answer. So that's why we're using the wedding icon. Jesus' disciples are feasting, not fasting. And he gets this question. Hey, John's disciples are fasting. The Pharisees' disciples are fasting. Why aren't your guys fasting? And you know what Jesus says? He says, would you go to a wedding ceremony, to a wedding feast and fast? That would be crazy. Nobody does that. You're sitting at the table after the ceremony. The mission barbecue is right here. And you're saying, no thanks, I'm fasting. Everybody's toasting. And you're saying, no thanks, I'm fasting. Nobody does that. It's not the right time and place. That wedding feast is a time to celebrate. And Jesus says, because I'm here, this is a time for celebration. In his presence is fullness of joy. That's what he's like, and that's what it's like to be with him. He's saying, because he's present, something new is happening. You don't take a new patch and put it on an old coat. You don't take new wine and put it into old wineskins. What's he saying here? He's not saying that he's bringing a new religion. He's saying that he's bringing a new covenant. Jesus is the new organizing center for God's people. The organizing center has been Jerusalem and the temple and the sacrifices and the priests and the kings. No more. Something new is happening. The kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Because the king is here. And in his presence is joy and a new family and forgiveness. And then he gives us one more, a picnic basket. They're picnicking on grain in a field on the Sabbath. Look at verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, the Old Testament was clear. It was okay to walk through a field and eat some grain. That was legal to do that. The problem in the eyes of the Pharisees wasn't that, he was, that they were eating the grain. The problem was that they were doing it on the Sabbath, and they considered that work. They weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. So the problem wasn't what they were doing as much as it was when they were doing it. Sabbath was supposed to be a day of rest, and they considered this to be work. But Jesus knows his Bible really well. And so, you know what he does? He tells them a story about a time, not a Sabbath time, but a time when an anointed king, David, broke the rules with his followers and yet met with God's approval. It's a brilliant handling of scripture, a very shrewd story to bring to these guys because here Jesus is revealing something to them. He's not only revealing and exposing the legalism and the way they were approaching the Sabbath, he's also revealing and exposing who he is. And he's saying, look, you know, there was a time when 
David was on the run from Saul, but he was the anointed king and he needed something to eat. So he went into the temple and he got the bread that only the priests were supposed to be able to eat. And he ate of that bread and he gave it to his followers. And so the implication is something like that is happening here right now. But you know what? The one who's standing here right now, he's greater than David. See, Jesus doesn't just know how to follow the rules of the Sabbath. Jesus made the Sabbath. Jesus doesn't just know how to have a Sabbath rest. Hear this. Jesus knows how to give Sabbath rest to the people of God. He's signaling to these people. There's a new king in town. And he's got a new band of followers with him. And I'm, I'm the one. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And again, he, he continues to give these opponents, he asks them questions and he leaves them with a sort of an, an implicit invitation. Won't you come? You could be part of this too. And then the last scene is this scene. Well, actually, let me just make a few, just sorry, I skipped a spot here. Let's keep these three scenes in front of us and just, just reflect for just a moment on what we've just heard. All three of these scenes, it's Jesus with his disciples. As Gabriella said, it's this new family that he's gathering together. And if you're one of Jesus' disciples, put yourself in these scenes and you'll realize that following Jesus might result in you and your fellow disciples being in conflict with the people in your city through no fault of your own, just because you're following him. Jesus' people continually and regularly find themselves in conflict with the world in which they live. But also see that Jesus radically changes the way you look at life. Jesus is the new organizing center for life. And if you're following Jesus, if you're in this company of people who are following him, as he becomes the, the, the Lord and the organizing center, you know what happens? You end up hanging around with people you would never hang around with otherwise. You end up hanging around with people who are very different from you. You end up having dinner with people that you would never have associated with before. You join together with fellow disciples in this new multicultural, multi-generational community called the church. Okay, last scene. We're going to use an F or an F minus on the exam because here we have some scribes utterly failing the exam. We're back in a synagogue, so we're full circle back to a synagogue. This is chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. We're probably in Capernaum, maybe where Jesus uh, uh, delivered that man from a, a, an unclean spirit earlier, back in chapter 1. And now, here's the scene. They're in, they're in the synagogue. Jesus is there. There's a man there with a, a withered hand who needs healing. And Pharisees are there. And you know what they're doing? They're watching to see if Jesus is going to heal. I want you to see once more how Jesus engages his opponents with a question. He asks these wonderful questions that are designed to soften their hearts and lead them to repentance. He says, verse 4, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Now that's actually not a very hard question, is it? Do you think the Pharisees are going to say, Well, the purpose of the Sabbath is to do harm and kill. I don't think they're going to think that, right? And so it's a pretty simple question, but it, it exposes their hearts. I want you to slow down 
and think about what we see here. Here's a man with a withered hand. It's, it, it doesn't work. He's suffering. And in this moment, he could be healed. Can you imagine what it would be like to have a hand that doesn't work and suddenly does? Now, there are opponents there. Jesus is ready to heal this guy. The guy is here. When these opponents are there, these Pharisees, what do they see? How do they assess this situation? They look at this man. Do they see his suffering? No. Do they see him with compassion? No. Do they see him as a fellow human being who, like them, are in need of God's grace and help and intervention? No. What do they see? They see him as a test. That's all he is. His humanity has been reduced to this simple test. He's been so dehumanized, he's simply become a litmus test to see, is Jesus going to do what we want him to do, or is he going to break the rules? Which, by the way, Jesus doesn't actually break any rules. He doesn't do any work. All he does is talk. He doesn't even break the Pharisees' rules. I want you to see this, though. This, this is a real man here with this withered hand. And these people around him have no sympathy, no empathy, no compassion. There is no personal connection with him. And Jesus Christ, the Messiah that they've been waiting for, they've been praying for, they've been reading their scriptures looking for, he's standing in front of them. Can you see this? Jesus is standing in front of them. And what do they see? They see Somebody to resist and ultimately kill. I ask you, how can that happen? How can that be? How can people with their Bibles open? How can people who pray? How can people who want the Messiah so utterly miss him when he's standing there? This is an important question. My Bible's open. I pray. I'm waiting for the Messiah. I fit this profile, and I don't want to be these guys. Do you? No way. How do they miss it? Look at verse 5. Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at what? Somebody tell me what it says. Grieved at their hardness of heart. Oh, God, keep us. From hard hearts. Oh God. God, keep us from hearts that look at people and see objects. God, keep us from hearts that dehumanize people made in the image of God. We see this dehumanizing work in the Bible, we see it in history. How could millions of African people have been reduced to mere objects for economic gain and slavery? How, how, how could that be? We see this tendency today, and it just saddens me how readily people are reduced in all their humanity, in all their dignity, in all the image of God, they're reduced to a word. Oh, he's a lib. She's a Republican. He's an evangelical. They're a bunch of progressives. The gays, the straights, the this, the that. Oh, God, keep us. God, keep us from hard hearts.
Oh, for hearts like Christ. Oh, for hearts that see people who aren't like us and recognize, oh, they're so like us. Made in the image of God. Corrupted by sin. Candidates for salvation in Christ. People to be honored and respected. Made in God's image. Maybe even people to be invited over for dinner. Though they're nothing like us. It's passages like this that give us a vision to be a multi cultural, multi-ethnic, multi-everything church. Because the good news of Jesus Christ is that he's collecting the other, the outsiders, the marginalized, the ostracized, the nothings in society. He's saying, come on in. You're my family. Come on in. I'm your Savior. I'm your Lord. God's your Father. Come in. I want to be a part of a family like that. I'm humbled to be included in a family like that. So let's put it together. What do we see? These five scenes. Paralyzed man. Bunch of tax collectors. Celebration like at a wedding. Picnicking in a field on some grain on the Sabbath and flunking the hardness of heart test in a synagogue. Oh, dear friends, can you see Jesus? Isn't he wonderful? Can you see him? His astonishing authority and compassion. Can you see him healing? Can you see him forgiving? Can you see him Welcoming? Can you see him even in the way he treats his opponents? Asking questions that lead to the heart, that open up a way for repentance and faith. And that's who he is to you today. Do you know him that way? You can. And what of his opponents? What of these Bible-believing people trying to kill the Messiah? Can you see their astonishingly hard hearts? Oh, for soft hearts. Psalm 51.10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Let their hearts be a warning to us to flee to Christ. I wonder if Jesus could read your mind as you look at other people. What's the script he'd be reading? wonder how often are we spending time with people who aren't at all like us. I wonder how often we find ourselves eating with unbelievers or having them into our home. Christ has come. He has authority on earth to forgive sins. Change is possible. Wherever we find ourselves today, let us come to him. Come to him with thanksgiving for what he's done. Come to him for repentant, with repentance and faith where change is needed. He is a faithful and merciful high priest and he's on a mission in his people to transform our hearts to become like his. And he's on a mission and if you're not following him, if you don't know him, that can change today. He's calling disciples still. Come follow me. 
He's still saying today. And if you're watching, if you're here, won't you come follow Jesus Christ? Turn from your sins. He will forgive them and wash you of them and make you new and bring you into his family.